Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to John's Gospel, chapter 14, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. John chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in a Bible study that I've entitled, The Glorious Spiritual Gifts of God. The Glorious Spiritual Gifts of God. Now I want you to use your imagination for a moment to go back in time to the time of John chapter 14 in the life of the apostles. Really, even ahead from John 14 to the ascension of Christ. To the ascension of Christ. The disciples have just spent three years of their lives completely, totally committed to Jesus. They spent all that wonderful time together, experiences the healings and the miracles and the feedings and the teachings and all the help. And they have gone through the the especially the last few weeks of the life of Jesus, where everything's coming to an end. And what a wild ride it had been, where they took their Jesus and they accused him and they put him on false trials. And then they took him and beat him. We learned that on Good Friday, the scourging. And then they took him from the scourging and they nailed him to a Roman cross where he died a torturous death. Then they took him down off the cross and they buried him in a tomb, sealed it up with Roman guards watching over it. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead, reunited with his disciples. They're exciting. They're excited by it. And then he spent 40 days with them, hanging out, feeding and reminding them and encouraging them. And then finally, he ascended into heaven. As you just take all that in in a few moments, I want you to be there standing, watching Jesus Christ. Just if you can, with your holy anointed imagination, imagine Jesus ascending into heaven, and this time, he's going for good. Now, he did promise to return, but he didn't tell them when. He didn't say this was gonna happen. He ascends into heaven, and what they have circling in their minds is just wait in Jerusalem. Because the Father's promised you, the Holy Spirit, just wait in Jerusalem. Well, what are we waiting for? You're waiting for the promise of the Father. Well, how will we know? You'll know. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you want to know how it's going to go down, but you're not going to really know until it happens. And that's where they are. It's just a mixture of emotions and concerns. But this, they're losing Jesus in their minds permanently expecting him to return at any moment. Now, he has gone from them physically, and that's important. He's gone from them physically, but then the gospel of Mark ends this way. Let me just read it to you in Mark 16, verse 19. So keep in mind, Jesus has gone physically, but this is what the Bible says. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. We call that the ascension. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. 
The Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. And that's how Mark ends. So in summary, Jesus is gone from them, but their life is described as he's working with them. And the question remains, how? How, did that, how is that possible? He's not with them, but he's very clearly working with them. He's not with them physically, but he's described as still being with them. How is it possible for Jesus to be in heaven at the right hand of the Father and still be with the disciples, with you and me? Well, we know the answer to that. It's through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He is with them through the Spirit. And we learn that in John 14. Notice with me John chapter 14. When you get there, pick up with me in verse 12. John 14, verse 12. Jesus is teaching them, and this is probably a year or so before the ascension. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father, the ascension. I'm going to go to my Father and you're actually going to do greater things than I did. Then he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Let's pause there for a second and mark a couple words in your Bible if you haven't already. The first word I want you to circle is the word another. And in the Greek language, this word refers to another of the same kind. You have yet another hint of the triune nature of God. I'm gonna send to you another of the same kind. It's not gonna be different. It's not gonna be completely different. He's gonna be another of the same kind. And then notice the second word, helper. Now this is the Greek word that's probably familiar to you. It's the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos. It's P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T or K-L-E-T-O-S. It comes to us from two Greek words, para, which means to come alongside, and kletos, that means to comfort. And so the word literally means to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, or someone that comes alongside. And anyone that's used the word paramedic, you understand this word. A paramedic is a medical professional that comes alongside someone that's sick to help them get stabilized and bring them to the other person they come alongside of, a medical professional at the hospital that's going to give them higher level of care than what they can. They come alongside to help. So Jesus is promising them now, they don't quite understand, they're not, they're not in the moment, they don't know how they're going to feel when he ascends into heaven. But when he ascends into heaven, Jesus says, I'm going to give you another helper. You're not going to be alone. And who is this helper? We learn in verse 17, he is the spirit of truth. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is teaching his disciples then and, and us as his disciples now of the three or of two relationships, he actually speaks of a third in the book of Acts, but 
three relationships that you can have with the Holy Spirit. The first one is the with experience, which this is, in verse 17, the Greek word para. The Holy Spirit is with every human being on the planet that has ever lived, drawing them and convicting them of sin. Unbelievers experience the Holy Spirit. They don't enjoy the Holy Spirit, but they experience the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a singular work in the world, and that is to convict the world of sin. You'll notice in the scriptures, it doesn't say of sins, but the with experience is to, to convict of the singular sin of rebellion and separation from God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the para experience. So you're praying for people right now that the Holy Spirit might convict them and draw them. You're praying uh, that, the mac- that the para experience will be maximized in their lives. Notice the second presence of the Holy Spirit relationship that you can have in verse 17 is that he will be in you. That's the Greek word en, E-N. We translate it I-N. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit for every born-again believer. For every believer, every person that has been born again, the Spirit of God immediately comes into our lives to dwell permanently in us. We became the property of the temple of the Holy Spirit. He seals us and leads us and guides us and comforts us internally. And that's a personal relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Acts. Hold your place in John. Keep your finger there, but turn over to Acts. We have done this in depth, so I'm not going to go in depth to this. It wasn't too many months ago we taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I want to give you enough now so you understand where we're headed in the next few weeks. Notice in Acts chapter 2, really in Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, but you shall receive power, or dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Circle that word upon. This is another Greek word in the third relationship that you can have with the Holy Spirit and that's the epi, E-P-I, the upon experience. Many times we will refer to that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus called it. He said, not many days you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so we refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God coming upon a person. Now, I know many in the church today confuse or even bring together baptism and filling in a more semantic way. And so I don't like to get involved in that. If you want to look at it as the filling, you want to look at it as the baptism, the thing that I want to get involved in is just receive the Spirit of God. Just receive His power in your life. Just understand that you can do nothing of your own. You can do nothing for God on your own. Do you know that? I didn't get a lot of amens for that. You know why? Because we live in a culture where, especially the church culture, where we take far too much credit upon ourselves for what God has done in our lives. I mean, you, something happens, you're like, well, what, why, why did that, why'd you have such a great week? Well, let me tell you, I made a commitment on Monday to read my Bible every day, and I pray, and because of that, God has given me many blessings. No! God has given you many blessings because he loves you, and he's gracious towards you, and has chosen not to give you what you deserve. And you're like, wait a minute, Ed, what about the Bible reading and praying? Oh, no, no, that is wonderful commitments to make. I believe you had a better week because you were in the word and prayer than if you weren't. 
But never think it's of your own effort or your own energy or all your good works that brings anything good in your life. Listen, you just got to get this clear. Anything good in your life comes from the Lord. Anything bad, that's your problem. That's my, that's my choices. And we just take far, we're, we're like in a pragmatic society, right? We're, we're very pragmatic. We, we do things that, that are very practical. But I think the great sin of the church today is we just take too much credit. You know, the Bible couldn't be clearer that without Jesus, we can do nothing. The Bible couldn't be clearer. But through him, we can do all things. And we just need to be careful to give God all the credit for the great things he has done and create a new habit of giving him all the glory for the great things he has done and continues to do. And we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we taught in Acts chapter 1 in previous studies. Please listen to it. Please receive the Spirit. Please be filled with the Spirit. You remember filling with the Spirit, when you think of baptism, it's the Greek word baptizo. It means to be submerged under and then we think of being filled, we think of something that's empty and you pour in and it fills up. We think of those words English-wise more spatially, but they're actually not spatial words in the original language. The baptism is to be controlled, to receive power, to be submerged in the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you don't get more of the Holy Spirit, he gets more of you. And you now walk in his power. As he infuses power upon you, you live a more submitted life. Well, the same with filling. The same with filling. You know, remember when the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, it starts with, don't be drunk with wine. Now we understand, we all understand what being drunk with wine means. It means to be under the influence of alcohol. It is something that's prohibited by the Bible. It is a sin to be drunk. To be under the influence of any substance that where you cannot think clearly to follow God in your own senses. Then he says, don't be drunk with wine, which is in excess, but what? Be ye, I like the old King James, that's how I memorized it. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he compares drunkenness with filling. And we, we know that you can be drunk with more than just uh, alcohol and drugs. You know, you see people all the time that are drunk with fame. They're, they're drunk with uh, entertainment. They're drunk with chasing after money and all the prominence. And drunk just means to be under the control of. That's all it really means, to be under the influence of. And so instead of being under the influence of something or someone, the Bible says, no, I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit. That is the life of Christ. And you know what has been substituted for being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, by walking in the Spirit? You know what the modern church has substituted? They've substituted that with religion and religious activity. And I recognize even today, I'm going to speak directly to some of you today, that it just live a religious life. Maybe you've sprinkled a few moral decisions in your life, but you still basically live for yourself. You still basically do what you want, when you want, how you want, with very little regard to the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. And yes, maybe you've become a more moral person. We appreciate that. Maybe you're no longer involved in things that were getting you in trouble. Your family appreciates that. But you are not living in the place where God desires you to have an abundant life, 
A life that is to be enjoyed, to be led. Like God has far greater plans for you than you could ever come up for yourself. He doesn't want you just being nice little religious people that go to church every once in a while, maybe read a Bible, maybe fold your hands and pray. No, he wants you to live a radical, surrendered life of faith where you're taking steps of faith, where you're trusting him, where you're opening your mouth in obedience, when you're like, you have, you, you do not want to rip yourself off by just being religious. You go, well, you know, what's your life? Well, you know, I went to church. You know, there's so much more than going to church. And unfortunately, even in the last few years, new habits have been created where people don't even go to church anymore. Churches are emptying. Churches are closing, even in our own city. It's tragic. It's tragic what's happening. And yet there is a remnant, is there not? Say, I don't want to be religious. I don't want to sprinkle a little moral decisions in my life. Jesus gave his best for me. And I owe him everything. He, he owns me. He owns me. And you know, it's not just me. He owns you too. He bought you with the blood that he shed. And he proved it to you by raising again, raising up from the dead, alive today, interceding on our behalf. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave. It's part of the Father's plan. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And that's how Jesus can be separate physically, but at the same time working with you and me. Through the Holy Spirit. Now, with that in mind, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we want to deal with yet another important issue concerning spiritual gifts. And it's found right here in verse 1. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. They're going through it. They're a young church. False teachers have come in. People, you know, we all mess things. People always mess things up. So they started out well, and then people in the church have messed things up. They have a lot of problems, but one of their problems has to do with spiritual gifts and the spiritual things that they were taught, but now they're not living in. Notice in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Ignorant. Of all the things they're dealing with, here's another one. They're living in ignorance of the Holy Spirit and his gifts for the church. They didn't know the truths on this topic. And I just want you to see at the outset, Paul's heart for them that was that they wouldn't be ignorant. Now don't be offended at that word. I know sometimes that word is thrown around in a very negative, condescending way. The Bible's not using it that way at all, and neither am I. But I suspect that there are many today, even in our own church, that are ignorant of spiritual gifts. You just lack knowledge. And because you lack knowledge, you're not able to live in the fullness of God that he has for you. It's just because you don't know, or you've never been taught. Or like the Corinthians, you've gotten off and you've forgotten things that you've been taught, and you're not walking in the fullness of God's plan for your life, surrendered to your gifts and what God has given to you, and operating in the place and the way that God desires. So my heart is like Paul. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to continue in ignorance. Do you know, actually, there's four things in the Bible, four times 
Ignorance is mentioned, that God doesn't want us to be ignorant. If you're taking notes, uh, these four things are very important because wouldn't you know it, it's these four things that have caused the most confusion and the most division theologically in the Bible. Four things. Number one, God doesn't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He wants you to know what his will is with the spiritual gifts he wants to give you. Secondly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, God does not want his church to be ignorant of the devil. He wants you to know there's a real devil. And he has plans and schemes and devices to destroy your life. That's what the Bible says. Lest Satan should take advantage of us because we're not ignorant of his devices. The, the kind of difficulty you have in your marriage, the difficulty with your kids, the frustration that you have. Like, like a lot of, the devil has assignments and he has things that he's throwing your way to kill, steal, and destroy your life. And God says, I don't want you to be ignorant. So what is the, a lot of the church, oh, the devil's not real, the devil's not real. No, God says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He's real. He's real. And you need to put on your spiritual armor and fight the good fight to stand against the wiles of the enemy. Thirdly, this is super important, these last two, God does not want you to be ignorant about his heart for Israel. Israel, the apple of God's eye. There are many today, I dare say, a large section of the church that believes God is done with Israel. Well, they need to read the Bible. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away on ungodliness from Jacob. There is a system of teaching today, a doctrine today that I absolutely do not agree with. It originated within the Roman Catholic system of religion and then Martin Luther took it with him and now it's the predominant view of Israel within Protestant churches, within churches that hold to reform theology. And it's, I give you a simple understanding of it. If you want to study these things, we taught through Romans verse by verse. And if you want to know God's heart for Israel, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. All those studies are up on our website or on our app. And, and they're, they're fascinating. But, but this teaching that I absolutely believe the Bible disagrees with is known as replacement theology. And it's simply put that there are many today that believes the church have taken the place of Israel in the heart of God. And all the promises that were given to Israel now come to the church. Well, no, that's, that's not possible. If God wouldn't keep his promise, all his promises to the apple of his eye, then what makes you think he's going to keep all his promises to the church? Either God keeps all his promises, like Joshua, I was just doing Joshua in my devos again, where he says, not a word that God promised failed to come to pass. And you're like, that's right. You're right. God keeps all of his promises. And there is a distinction between Israel there's a distinction between the church, but you know what God did when it comes to Israel and the church? The Bible says that God grafted the church. You know where he grafted us into? Israel. 
He has brought us in to the existing work of Israel. However, he's dealing with the Gentiles right now. Most of the salvations that are happening around the world today happening among the Gentiles. But there's coming a day, the Bible says, right here we just read it, where the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. And we believe that to mean that there is a fixed number of Gentiles that God knows, we don't know, but God knows. And when that last Gentile gets saved, the rapture of the church takes place. And we're going to be forever with the Lord. So if you are that last Gentile, would you please receive the Lord today? You're holding up the program. We want to go. We want to be with the Lord. But until then, we disciple and evangelize and worship our Jesus. Don't be ignorant about Israel. And then fourthly, the Bible says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the rapture, the second coming. We find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in a very familiar passage. Let me read it to you in verse 13. We urge you, brethren, to recognize... Oh, Wrong chapter. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, we've studied this in depth through Corinthians, through 1 Thessalonians. Those studies are available. It's not God's heart for you to be ignorant on these matters. Come back to 1 Corinthians 12 now. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. If you're reading from a New King James Bible, I want to show you something that the translators have done throughout the New King James. I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Do you guys see that with me? Now notice the word gifts. Do you see that in italics in your Bible? Yes or no? Okay, words that are in italics in the New King James Version are not a part of the original Greek transcripts. They are not a part. They were added by the translation team to try to help you understand the formation of the Greek language. Because if you just took the Greek language and translated it, it wouldn't make much sense to us. Words and thoughts need to be rearranged and full sentences need to be created. And so they would add, most of the time, it's actually a good addition, most of the time, it fits really well. But sometimes it's not needed. And this is one of those places. It actually adds a little bit of confusion to see these just as any other gifts when really what Paul is saying, you could translate this verse, really it could read this way. Now concerning spiritual things, or you could even say concerning spiritualities. God wants to give insight into the spiritual realm of how he deals with his children. Now, for many years, I believe that if you just counted up the mention of gifts in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, you would get a good idea of all the gifts on equal planes that God gave to his church. But as I was studying it deeper, 
I believe the Lord has laid out for us. I, I, I see a different perspective when it comes to spiritual gifts. And the key is to understand what your spiritual gift is. And God has given to every single born-again believer one of seven motivational, primary, foundational spiritual gifts. Now, some of you immediately go, wait a minute, Pastor, wait a minute, Ed. I thought they were more than seven gifts. I've heard that there are many more. Well, there are other listings of how the Holy Spirit works with us. But if you read carefully, only in Romans is the word charisma used, literally a free gift. So you have listings in 1 Corinthians where we are, Ephesians chapter 4, and also in Romans chapter 12. Let me break it down to you. And like I said, these are going to be more Bible study times that we have. A lot less application in the next few weeks uh, so that you have a foundation. You can go back and study for yourself. So Romans contains the seven motivational gifts. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. And the ministries, or just a few of the ministries, are mentioned in Ephesians 4. So you have, manif- you have motivational gifts, manifestations, and ministries. And as we are open to the Holy Spirit, through the gifting that God has given to you, one of the seven. Now, you Bible students know that the number seven is represented in the Bible. It's a type of perfection, completion. And so the seven motivational gifts listed in Romans represent a complete work of Jesus through his church if he was still on the earth. So as all those seven gifts operate among us, then we have a full representation or a complete representation of the life and ministry of Jesus through his church, right? He's not physically with us, but he's ministering with us. How? Through the seven motivational gifts. And then when you come to 1 Corinthians 12, you have the manifestations of the Spirit that come to help, support, and enhance your primary gift. And then in Ephesians 4, you have a listing of a few of the different offices or ministries where gifts operate in the church. So with all that in mind, let's go to Romans chapter 12. And let's see and learn those seven motivational gifts. And these will be the seven gifts we focus on in our coming studies. That every single one of you have been given at least one, some of you more, but one really moves you. That's why we like to, that's why I use the word motivation, because that word motivation speaks to moving you. What really moves you? What what really causes you to step forward in a very powerful and yet natural way in the body? It also accounts for why we're so different, why we're not all the same. And we learn that in Corinthians as well. By the way, there is a whole series, if you want to get ahead, there is a whole series on, on our website, we just added it and made sure it's all in order on the Holy Spirit that I did in depth already. This next one's not gonna be in depth in these studies, but I've already studied, I've already taught through Ephesians, I've already taught through 1 Corinthians and, and did a much broader uh, introduction and Romans. And so although we'll be repeating Romans again, we, we look and I look at and explain how the manifestations come and support 
your primary gift in that place. So, in Romans 12, verse 6. Having then gifts, charisma, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. Ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Those are the seven motivational gifts, and they're very different. You know, I think of the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy is such a beautiful gift. And those men and women that have the gift of mercy, as you'll see it explained, they tend to gravitate toward particular types of career. You know, people with the gift of mercy tend to be nurses, doctors, they're in the care industry, uh, veterinarians, uh, counselors, social workers. They, they have a desire to work with kids. Uh, because there's a merciful part of their lives, and that's where God wants them. God gifted them with mercy, and that's where God wants them. Whereas, you know, the gift of teaching was really just a gift of explaining, and some of you have been supernaturally gifted to explain. I know one of the things, one, one of the reasons why uh, people don't want to know their gifts is because they're afraid if they find out what their gift is, the very next thing God will do is send them someplace that will make them absolutely miserable. And say, like, well, you know, if I know my spiritual gift, then maybe God's going to send me as a missionary to the middle of the jungle somewhere, and I don't want to be a missionary. Well, first of all, if you think God really desires to make you miserable in life as you serve him, you just misunderstand God has nothing to do with your spiritual gift. You just misunderstand the character and nature of God. He probably cares more about your joy and happiness and abundance in him than you do sometimes. And if it is God's will for you to be a missionary, you will enjoy it. It will be, it might be new. It might be a step of faith. It, it might be something you never thought of before, but it'll bring you great joy as you serve the Lord with your gifting. And, you know, some people go, you know, Ed, I could never do what you're doing up there. You could never do, I could, I just don't ever see myself doing that. And if I learn my gift, maybe he's going to make me do that. No, no, if you don't have the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teacher, you'll never do this. The, 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 the teaching part of ministry is reserved for those men that have been gifted in that area. However, if you do have the gift of teaching, then you can't help but explain things to people and help things become simpler so people can understand it because that's how God made you. Not just in the church. Not just in the church. Because you spend most of your life outside of the confines of this building. And so your gifts will be exercised there more than they'll ever be exercised here. Now, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Here we have the ministries that are listed out. And there's just a few of them. It's not an exhaustive list. Pick up with me in verse 10. Ephesians 4, verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
So consider these offices. God has created offices that he has given to us as the church as a gift. And I don't know if you've ever, ever thought about this before. I don't know if you've ever thought about Pastor Ed as God's gift to you in the church. Now, not many people were excited about ever. Other services went crazy about that. Yeah, yeah, we love you again. You guys want to look at the return policy. It's like, get on here. But pastors and teachers are God's gift to the church. The men that God has put in your life, the women in authority that God has put in your life are God's gift to you. Those that speak comfort, those that speak correction, they're God's gift to you. I mean, even here, you know, Brian, there's a brother in our church that's been here from the beginning, here before I even got here. His name is Brian. And Brian was telling me his story that when he moved to Aurora, he was praying for a Calvary Chapel to be in Aurora. There was not a Calvary Chapel anywhere near Aurora. So he's praying with his wife, Carmen, praying, praying, praying. And then we show up, my wife and I and our three kids, we show up in July. And then by the time November comes along, we took this small group of people that were meeting as a small little study on Saturdays. And our church started December 26, 1999. And the ministry's been going on for 22 years. So whenever I see Brian and he's in one of those moods, I'm always reminding him, hey, Brian, you were praying for a church here, weren't you? Yeah, you're praying for a pastor to show up, a church planner. Yeah, and I say, well, Brian, I never want you to forget. I am God's answer to your prayer. <laughs> and he shakes his head and walks away. But here's what the Bible's saying. God has given to us pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets as gifts to us so that we might be equipped for the work of the ministry and we might do what God called us to do. And then in 1 Corinthians, of course, we're not going to read all the manifestations, but these manifestations are given, and you can see, if you want to come back to 1 Corinthians as we close today, you can see that there are four different categories of spiritual things that are listed here. He says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts. Verse 5, there are differences of ministries. Verse 6, there's dif diversities of activities. And then verse 7, there's the manifestation of the Spirit given to each one for the profit of all. We're going to be headed into Romans so you can learn your primary motivational gift. So that once you know it, you can serve God confidently. You can pray that God would enhance it. And you can grow in exactly how God has made you. There's nothing more frustrating than to be involved in something that God never called you to do. Never gifted to do you do. People get so frustrated and so upset because they're on a pathway in a direction that God never called them or gifted them in. Now, two more things. Again, I've done this in depth, but it's important to understand our view of the Holy Spirit avoids the extremes that exist in the church today. There are primarily two extremes when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. On one side, there's something known as cessationism. And that word comes to us, we get our word cease from. There are people today in the church, large, large parts of the church, that believe that not all the gifts exist today, that they stopped. And the basic thinking is, is that now we have the Bible. The, the early church didn't have the full Bible yet. So because they didn't have the full Bible yet, they needed all these gifts. But now that we have the full Bible, and we do, this is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. God is not writing new pages in the Bible. He's not taking pages out. This is it. So yes, we do have the Bible. 
But the thinking goes that now that we have the Bible, we don't need as much of the Holy Spirit as the first century church did. And I just say that's not, that, that, that's not indicated anywhere in the scriptures, anywhere. It's really a doctrine of man. I would even put it this way. If you want to use that kind of logic, I would say this. We are closer than ever before to the coming of the Lord. We're living in perilous times. The days of Noah are upon us. We have the word of God that is complete and sure and steadfast. We don't need less of the Holy Spirit today. We need more, more of the Holy Spirit. So we're not cessationists. In case you ever hear that word, we're not cessationists. On the other extreme is something that I've termed, because I haven't found a better word for it, hyper-expressionism. And that is churches that have absolutely gone bonkers related to the Holy Spirit. Just things that are so outlandish. And things, if I said to you right now, you would laugh. And you're just like, are you serious? People teach that and believe that? Yes, they do. And we have all these false prophets and false prophetesses that now have people's ears and you have, you know, gold dust from the, on and on it goes. People, are, people do things and then you go, hey, bro, that's not in the word. And they go, oh, no, the Holy Spirit made me do it. Like, no, the Holy Spirit didn't make you weird, man. You're just weird. You can't blame the Holy Spirit on that. But so many bad things are doing, happening in the church today and the Spirit of God is getting blamed for it. Listen, the Spirit of God is a gentleman third person of the Trinity is God who dwells in us. He has all the attributes of God. He's not the author of confusion. In some churches today, the gifts of the Spirit get more attention than the giver. And that's just not the church you're a part of. We don't, we don't fall to either one of those extremes. It's very challenging, but we try to stay right down the middle. We try to say in a godly, biblical approach on what the Bible says about gifts, how they're to be exercised. So we're not in, any, we're not in either camp when it comes to the extreme. We just want to be in the midst of God's Spirit moving on the earth today. We don't want to do things in our flesh. I was listening to a podcast on the way into service last night, and one of the guys, they're talking about all the problems in the church and all the difficulties after the pandemic and all of that. It's all actually uh, pretty accurate of what they, uh, of the observations that you made. But then the brother said, yeah, you know, we spend two or three days a week sitting in all these meetings, and all we talk about is how we're going to save the church and how we're going to rescue the church. And we're in meeting after meeting and talking after talking. And, and it, I don't know if you guys do this, but sometimes I talk back to the radio. And I'm like, are you crazy? Stop having meetings. The only meetings that you should be in on what God wants to do in his church is a prayer meeting. You're not going to figure it out. We're not going to sit down and go, okay, this is your plan, and this is your plan, and this is your plan. No, we need to get our plans from God and let him carry it out in our lives. And so he didn't hear me, but that's how I felt. I don't like meetings to begin with. Like, we don't need to be sitting around. We can't solve the problems of this world. Only Jesus Christ can solve the problem. But we can't just talk or stand around talking about it either. You've got to surrender to your life to the Lord. You need to live in a, in a place where you're walking in the Spirit, trusting in God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you're lacking that right now, this is where we're headed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to think that it's plans and purposes and programs and books and all these other things. This is how you can solve it. This is how you can solve it. There are so many problems that I have on my desk and in my email box. I'll just tell you right now, I have no idea what the answer is. 
But the reason they're on my desk and in my email is I'm praying over them. Maybe God will give me the answer. But maybe he won't. And if he does say, you know what, I'm not going to give you the answer, that will be my answer to your email. I have no idea. We need to pray. Because God has you on a path where you don't need me, you need more of him. You need to surrender to him. And church, I just have to repeat this one more time. I know you're seeing what's happening in the world. I know it's scary. I know it's challenging. I know it's starting to hit your comfort and your pocketbook and all of that. I know that. But complaining will not progress the gospel. It will do nothing to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you seek to complain and murmur and be all upset and blame the government and blame this and blame everybody about the ills of the world, then what you're doing is you're living in a temporary kingdom. You're all caught up in the temporary. And the Bible says that we preach an eternal kingdom that is over and above the difficulties that we're facing. And could it be that God is stirring up your comfort and stirring up your idolatry like he did with the nation of Israel, like he did with Judah, so that we will truly repent and come back to the Lord and be usable in this dark world? Because if it's hard for you, and it is, it is, it's very hard. You can see inflation and the economy and the global things and pandemic, you see it all, it is very hard. But I want you, have you considered lately how hard it is for your next door neighbor? Have you thought about that? Yeah, the neighbor that, oh, it's hard for him equally, but he also doesn't know God, has no relationship with Jesus. Don't you think that's a great concern? Instead of just talking over the fence, oh, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. Well, I thought you were a Christian. Don't you have a kingdom that's eternal? Oh, no, I don't know. I don't even know what. You know, like, man, get in the word, get in prayer, and be used by God. That's my point. <laughs> Father, I pray for your spirit to use us in these last days. That's just that we would be surrendered. I know there's areas in my life, Lord, that you're also causing me to surrender. You're bringing things to light that I might be more in tune, not less. And it's not for them, it's for us. It's not some preacher pounding a pulpit, but it's about the work of your spirit on the earth today. I think it would happen in Noah's day. Everybody missed it but Noah and his family. And we don't want that. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to rally around a political opinion. We don't want to rally around a social cause. We don't want to rally around what would make us more comfortable. We want to rally around the cross and the empty tomb. We want to live out what we say we believe, God. We want to be a church that continues to evangelize and disciple, even as we face our own hardships and challenges. So help us, God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church. Wow, you guys got a little heavier than the other services, so there's somebody in here that needed to hear it. But I I don't know. I don't even know. It's not like I don't deal with this stuff myself. I do. It's not like I don't preach to myself. I do. But man, I, I just get this sense that there's so many in our church that wants to be used by God. You just, that, that, and you may not even be able to articulate it. But God is stirring you. 
helping you. You might be that one that says, hey, there's some, you know, I, I think of putting gas in, right? Everybody's upset. They got little stickers of our president and this is this and all this. Yeah, it's actually not very funny at all because there's a, it, who cares what the price of gas is? Put gas in your car and then think about the attendant that's going to take your credit card. Think, think about the person that maybe the single mom that's over there, buy their gas too. You know, now all of a sudden the, the price is so high, you're not even thinking about blessing people anymore. You're not even thinking about, like, the whole world has got us thinking about ourselves again. And we're not even thinking about helping anybody. We'd rather complain about it. Well, you complain all you want, but it's going to be burned up at the Bema seat. It's going to be burned up. And if you don't believe this foundational truth, you're going to be really jacked up in the future. And this is this. And I'll end here. God is sovereign. Nothing that's happening went around God somehow. He is using all things. You know, okay, I'm not going to end here. Oh, no. I got to remember where it was. I was reading this morning because uh, I opened up to the wrong section in our little meeting before service. And I opened up to the wrong section of the Bible and I started reading of this episode in the life of Israel because you're hearing now in our, uh, in, around the world that there's you know, food, that scarcity and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, you see, you're hearing a lot of it. I just read another one this morning. So this is reality. I'm not asking you not to live in reality. Sometimes they'll go, Ed, you're a pastor, you don't live in reality. No, I live in reality. I go to the same gas stations you do, same market you do. I live in reality. But check this out. This, uh, I opened to the wrong text, and this is what I read. While he was talking, I was reading. He said, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And here's what David did. This is what caught my eyes. This is what convicts me. This is just, David inquired of the Lord. That's what he did. Famine for three years. Joseph oversaw a famine for seven years. And what did he do? He inquired of the Lord. And he also put stuff away so he could save and help others. But David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered. He says, you want to know why you have the famine? It's because of Saul. It's because of his bloodthirsty house and how he killed the Gibeonites. You want to know why I have a lot of famine? Saul. And I don't know the answer. God hasn't answered. It just caused me to now start praying more. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what God's doing. But I do know this. God is doing. And he's got you through tough times before. He'll get you through tough times again. Don't lose your compassion. Don't lose your mercy. Don't lose, don't lose that. That's God's gift to you. Don't lose it. Be the church. Now I'm done. Let's sing this on the Lord. <laughs> We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.